Today I sit down with Michael Robin. We dig into her workout and weight loss journey, have a conversation about the controversial Big is Beautiful slogan, foodscaping, surgery versus exercise, and more. We touch on her family trauma, living through a school shooting, and her personal path as a survivor. We also talk about living in the Mormon church and being excommunicated. Lastly, we talk about her new podcast and the challenges of being a CMO. And with that, here's my conversation with Michael Robin. Hello and welcome to the Yarsnake Show. Today with me, Michael Robin. How are you? Hey, I'm pretty good today. Yeah, it's good to have you. Thank Making you. Making the long drive down. A lot of traffic today. Uh, did you see the same amount of traffic I did? I think so. There was just a wall on Mopac and then <laughs> more walls. It's um, <clears throat> just I knew that. you were coming. I, I called ahead and made sure that they backed it right up for you. So you could spend more time you know, listening to podcasts and preparing, preparing. for the content. <laughs> you know me so well. So we have a bunch of things I wanted to talk about. Um, so um, it's actually not a good flow between the different topics. So we're just going to wing it and go for it because it's kind of all over the place. Okay, we're going to wing it. We're going to wing it. <clears throat> so one of the things um, I learned about you extremely early on when we started talking was you've had quite a weight loss journey. Um, mm. You had not, you're not, you have not always looked like you do today. You've um, managed to um, slim down quite a bit. So I guess the first question is, what got you down the path of thinking that's something you were going to do? Like what, what I'm sure you'd had that thought at some point before you did it. What was the trigger that made you start? Yeah. Uh, and like you mentioned, I had thought about it a lot. There were several fits and starts between when I recognized that I had um, been obese or what my doctors would have categorized as morbidly obese. So for my, for my frame at my highest um, mass, I was 289 pounds and I'm five foot four. So if you look at the BMI, which is a highly controversial way to basically look and, and judge your sense of health or, or well-being, um, I was morbidly obese. So I had fits and starts of getting healthy and getting fit um, between the age of 16 up until around the age of 30. What, what, what did you do in that time frame? What would, what would be an example of one of the things you did? Um, trying portion control, uh, limiting sodas. Um, I would like, I went on the Atkins diet in high school just because a couple of my other friends were doing it, but that just made me really sad. <laughs> like, like, oh, like depressed, sad. Yeah, not, yeah. Not De sad because you had to be depressed, on the <laughs> Depressed, sad. Not because I, I couldn't eat sugar. I, um, <laughs> I was probably sad because of that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and nothing had a balance. So that was that was the, the thread between it all. But eventually, um, after one health challenge arose after another, and I had had um, a herniated disc that had ruptured in my back between my L4 and L5, and I had to be operated on, which was actually very scary. You know, you don't really know what's going to happen. You can trust a surgeon as much as their ratings on all of, you know, the, the scale of in insurance apps and what your friends can recommend. But at the end of the day, your life is in their hands, and you have to sign waivers that say, I may or may not wake up paralyzed. Um or at all. 
that wasn't as high of a risk with this surgery. Um, and I, and I say that seriously, I've had multiple surgeries because of my health problems. So this was after two DNCs from fertility issues, um, my gallbladder being removed and then having, um, having my discectomy, dis, discectomy, um, my doctor was just basically telling me that I needed to really focus on bringing my weight down in order to help support my back so that this wouldn't happen again. And, um, and I would need to work on portion control and maybe some light exercises, lifting light weights and walking. Um, and he said, I'd probably never be able to run or do any like hyper cardio active exercises, but I, I challenged that after a couple of years of seeing the, the numbers go down, um, in my weight loss journey. So I had back surgery in 2012. I was 28, um, years old at the time. And by the time I was 30, I had finally, um, I had finally gotten into what a lot of us who have gone through a weight loss journey, similar to myself in the 100 club, hmm. which is like when you're in the realm of 100 pounds, which, um, is we don't all want to focus on scale victories. Uh, there's this whole debate between non-scale victory and scale victories, which we'll probably get into later talking about body positivity, um, and, and things like that. But it, it was huge for me, but I plateaued and I, I felt stuck. I was in, I was in the one nineties And so, um, I was at the gym and one day I got on a treadmill and I went from walking to jogging at like a five and a half mile an hour pace and was able to jog a mile without being out of breath. And the next day I did a mile and a half and I just started increasing my mileage and learned that I like to run and it didn't have any uh, implications on my back at all. Hmm. So was that a risk? Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, totally a risk. Uh, luckily I was still seeing a, um, a PT at the time who was still working with me on ensuring that I wasn't re-injuring my back because it's totally high risk situation then. Um, and I was able to get out of being stuck in that zone and start doing more hyper cardio exercises. I joined Camp Gladiator. I was doing group exercises, lots of running and, and all sorts of things other people thought were crazy, but I thought they were fun and I felt more comfortable in the new skin I was in. Hmm. <clears throat> well, so congratulations, first of all, because that's quite a journey. Thank um, you. So what do you feel um, you kind of alluded to it earlier. What do you feel when people say, you know, big is beautiful or this sort of body positivity, which I mean, at a, at a surface level, obviously everyone should be proud of who they are and, you know, be self-confident and all that kind of stuff. But there is something else going on there. So what, what, what goes on in your head? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really the last to tell anyone that, if they're big, they are not beautiful. You can certainly be big and and beautiful. You can be small and beautiful, right? You can be any shape, size, color, 
whatever you may be in beautiful but for me personally I was never comfortable in in that in that size I never felt good I always felt unhealthy I spent a lot of time in the hospital at the doctor's offices taking prescriptions that were probably hurting me more than they were doing me good I wasn't um, really focusing on putting the right things in my body um, that would generate not just good nutrients, but also like mental positivity. Um, there's a lot of studies and links to your mood and what you're eating, right? So a lot of fried foods and, and sugars will definitely make you feel a heck of a lot worse than just eating, you know, fruits and natural vegetables and, and healthy proteins and things like that. So um, I don't necessarily celebrate it or champion it um, because, and this is going to be bold, I don't, I don't agree with it in, in, um, in a lot of ways. If the only goal is to celebrate big is beautiful, um, because I also want to say bony is beautiful, and I also want to say that, um, you know, being medium size is beautiful and being your size is beautiful and my size is beautiful and his size and her size is beautiful. But it's all about how you feel on the inside about yourself and not necessarily about how many double, triple, quadruple X's are before the L on the um, clothing rack that you're buying from the store. So it's interesting you mentioned the BMI earlier. <clears throat> I just went to the doctor a day ago, two days ago, something. And um, I got back my BMI, which I didn't actually ask to be checked, but it's sort of a standard thing that they always do. Yeah, it's like, who asked for this? <laughs> I, I just I, I just don't believe in it. Hey, Robert, what's a BMI? Uh, body mass index. It's a measure of approximately two things, how tall you are and how much you weigh, which is not a particularly useful metric if you think about it because someone who's incredibly muscular might weigh a lot, but they're in great shape. Yeah. Whereas somebody who's in absolutely terrible shape might weigh exactly the same amount and so with the same height. So that's not really a measure of health. And um, I'd like to see think that I'm in pretty good shape and I am what's considered obese by the standard of BMI. I see. So I, I, I really don't like that. I think uh, the U.S. Army has a calculator uh, that they use for people coming in. And it's it's basically you just answer like four or five questions uh, if you're a woman. And I think maybe just two or three if you're a man. And uh, effectively, it's been proven to be very close to what a DEXA scan will give you, which is extremely accurate. Right. So without having to do a DEXA scan, which is nice. And by that standard, I'm in quite good shape, um, you know, could easily be in the armed forces. So I don't, I don't think that that matters too much, but I do think um, there are health uh, issues, as you pointed out, related to weighing too much for your frame right. um, or things that it might do to your breathing or other aspects of your health, um, not to mention heart disease and some of these other things. So um, I... I mean, I, how do you feel when people say this I mean, when they, when they come out and say, you know, like you should, you should love this fat person for being fat. Um, is that, what's your like gut reaction when you see that? Well, I've never heard them say it like that. Well, 
<laughs> sure. I'm, I'm being, I'm being indelicate, but that yeah. is, that is effectively what's going on. Um, I mean, it doesn't necessarily make me want to love whoever they're championing just for that image. I want to understand if there's more, more layers to that, right? Because myself as an individual, as a young woman who was overweight, I felt that most people couldn't see past the fact that I was fat and I was overweight. So I was overlooked. I was never like, oh, you're so amazing at this. And like everybody wanted me around. I constantly had the sense that I didn't belong in multiple arenas and in my life. And, um, and so when I hear that, um, about pop stars or models, I actually want to dig a little bit deeper and understand, um, what more is it about this individual that I could love? That's beautiful. That's not just about what size they were. Well, I'm afraid if you're talking about pop stars, maybe not much, but <laughs> that's a separate issue. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm just being funny. Yeah. Um, so where do you think that all comes from? So in my opinion, one way it could come about is trying to sell more clothing to mm-hmm. a wider population. So if the clothing ma- manufacturer embraces uh, big is beautiful and now we have plus size models, plus size people go, okay, I can buy that product because they have my size and I... And, and rightfully so they shouldn't feel ashamed of having to, to clothe themselves. I mean, that, that, that's a normal thing. Yeah. But is there anything more to it? I mean, you're in marketing, so I'm like, do you have any more insight into that? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not in retail or consumer marketing, but, uh, I do, I do think you're onto something there. I do also think psychologically it is about creating a safe space and, and social equity, um, to, help everyone feel equal. Um, not necessarily that that may be the best way to go about it, but that that folks do have, you know, the opportunity to walk into any store and wear the same thing that a size four woman would wear as a size 16 woman would wear, which was a challenge for me, right? Um, I do actually, when I was pretty active on social media um, last year, I did appreciate the campaigns where I did see side to side. Um, Here's a woman in a size whatever, and it was like a very small size, and a woman in a in a size that would be considered large or extra large. And I was like, yeah, that, that works on both of those sizes. And that's fantastic as to not shame anyone for being a certain shape or size. But I do think that after a certain point it does introduce a lot of serious health conditions into not just women but men right so we're talking about cardiovascular related issues fertility hormonal issues issues with your gastrointestinal intestinal tract mm-hmm. got a little um <laughs> flabbergasted <laughs> there and and welcome to the club i'm terrible at this and yeah and and <clears throat> definitely issues to you know your skeletal structure when i started running, I had to pay particular attention to my hips and my knees because a lot of my weight was in my stomach and, um, my, my chest and my back. And so, and I, I worked a lot on, um, standing up and I didn't quite realize how much of a, uh, compression I had put on my, my knees and my hips. And so I had to do a lot of like massage therapy and cryotherapy to try to work out the pain after the runs. 
um, just had no idea how much damage I was doing to my body by being overweight for so long. So what to you does healthy actually mean? Like if you had to define health, a healthy person, what would that, what would that person look like or what would they have to do or what metrics would you use? Well, I'm not a doctor, thankfully. No, Uh, I know, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't even say at this point I'm healthy uh, because I'm, I'm managing a few health conditions um, at this time, but I think it's a balance of if you're able to um, do your like daily routine without getting out of breath, right? Do a standard day without uh, getting to exhaustion too quickly. Um, and, and maybe um, the last thing I'll say on this, because this is stumped me uh, yeah. a, a little bit, but um, that you're, you're practicing just a sense of balance in what you're putting into your body and what you're also exerting, right? It's not just about what you're eating, but it's what you're doing, whether it's walking or swimming or taking part in some sort of physical exercise um, that you enjoy. It does not have to be heavy or hard. Lots of people like walking or paddle boarding or um, cycling. And some of those things can be very enjoyable and don't have to be very hard. Um, but getting getting to find out what those are for you can be very healthy, not just for your physical body, but for your mental health too. I saw some video once and I'd be very hard pressed to figure out where it was and who was the speaker, but it was some doctor. And he said that one measure of health is how many days of your life as a percentage do you spend in the hospital? It's just one measure. There's lots of different measures. Um, But I always really liked that one. That one stuck with me because what I find is extremely healthy people like on a day-to-day basis walking around, they don't wind up in the hospital very often unless they do something like, you know, fall down and break a hip or something, or, you know, they're on a motorcycle and they crash or whatever. And at that point they become unhealthy that, I mean, it's their body is otherwise fine, but they have done something to injure it and Mm -hmm. you can speed up that injury or cause additional injuries by eating or by doing other things that, Ballistic exercise is the most common way an otherwise healthy person gets injured, but it could be all kinds of things. Smoking, for instance, is slowly injuring your body and so on. So I like to think of it in that context where anything that is a feeder into ending up in the hospital is something you should probably try to avoid as much as, you know, reasonably possible without limiting all the excitement in your life, you know? (laughs) So, okay. So I know uh, that you have gotten into something called foodscaping. Can you talk a little bit about that as it, as it relates to health especially? Yeah, um, this, uh, and this is actually a rather new topic I'm researching and I'm quite excited about it. So um, my, my partner and I uh, bought a home over the summer and one of the challenges uh, that he gave me, which he is constantly challenging me to try new things. One of the reasons I've stuck with him after all this time is um, is to integrate the plants that we put in our yard uh, to some amount of edibility. 
And I was like, yeah, there has to be a word for that. So I started doing research and I was like, there's a word for it. It's called foodscaping. Uh, so in my research, I, I not only found, you know, that there are actual landscapers, well, they're called foodscapers that come out and they will come in and install your entire foodscaped yard for you if you choose. Um, but they're hobbyists. Hopefully someday when we move into our home, um, I will be a foodscape hobbyist. Um, but it's essentially... Are there, are there books on this or websites? There are or? books and podcasts and websites. And um, there's like famous ones and region regional uh, contests and all sorts of um, resources for foodscaping. So if you, this is piquing your interest, just Google it or use whatever search engine you are prompt. <laughs> anyway, yeah, our snakes um, listeners, if you know our snake well, Google may not be your <laughs> search engine of choice. So, um, so it is um, basically where you integrate in your natural landscape. Um, edible, sustainable, uh, food, uh, into your landscape. It's not a separate garden area. So ideally in the utopian foodscape, you will not even have a separate garden. So you're just walking in your yard and you have a blackberry bush and it's like in full bloom. And then right next to it, you've got giant cherry tree that's blossoming and you can pick a cherry and go about your day and then you've got a row of maybe some wild onions um and when those sprout out of the ground they actually bloom some really beautiful purple flowers so it can actually provide some really um like elegant ornamental impact to your eye it can be aesthetically pleasing but at the same time it's providing some sustainability for your home uh, food security, uh, which is something I've I've always struggled with all of my life from from some demons <laughs> from my past. Um, but um, during the pandemic, I uh, basically found out about myself that gardening was a med- meditative for me, and so I would spend maybe a good forty five minutes every day during the summer going out to my. Uh, my hodgepodge garden uh, in in the backyard and prune and uh, make sure that everything was well taken care of. And I've made many a salsa um, dish, um, lots of, um, what are those things called? The uh, shishito peppers, um, tried squash blossoms one year because the zucchini never happened. We just got tons of squash blossoms. Um, but it's something that I could ideally see the entire yard transforming into a foodscape. So why would one do this other than just food security? Is there any other reasons for it? Um, I haven't really found any any other. Um, is it healthier? Are there other I, benefits to the home? I don't necessarily think it's healthier. Um, people who are... Um, really dedicated to saving the world and saving the environment. Um, and if you can produce a lot on your land, you over time save mileage from going to and from the store to gather the things that you need that are already growing on your property. Is um, it better for the wildlife? 
since they can possibly eat off your bushes and (laughs) trees and whatever. Sure. Um, but then you won't have, right. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm not struggling with the idea of putting out a foodscape and then having it completely ravaged by the deer that I love in the new neighborhood. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's mostly just benefiting, um, the food security sustainability and ensuring that, you know, you have something beautiful to look at and, and also, um, have a, a land to cultivate from. And with my kids, it's been especially nice to see them enjoy and learn how to garden, what works well, what doesn't work well with my youngest, he's six and, um, getting him unafraid of pollinators specifically bees, um, and just understand that if you're not hurting them, they won't hurt you. They're here for a purpose. Um, and just letting them go to the flowers that are the most important so they can go to the next flower to help things grow has been one of the most rewarding experiences of tapping into my gardening Mm -hmm. hobby. So you're also a trained chef. Um, Mm -hmm. And so um, I know a lot of chefs like to use local herbs and vegetables. Does that sort of play a part in this in terms of your health journey or any like taste flavors where you're, you're going to your garden as opposed to going to the store? Yeah. Having, Direct access to the ingredients I need certainly plays well into how I enjoy cooking in the kitchen. So a few weeks ago, I bought a few bunches of green onions from the grocery store. And instead of just throwing away the bottom roots, which one would normally do, I decided we've been going through so many green onions lately. I'll just replant them in um, in some water. So we just stuck them in some mason jars and we've use them three or four times since. And it's, um, it's something we can't always do here in Texas, especially if you're not in permanent housing, right? So if you're in an apartment or in a rental, it's been extremely difficult for me to commit to the land. Um, but as someone who's settling down, you heard it, (laughs) um, who's settling down and committing, um, I'm really looking forward to just sending out the kids or going out myself and grabbing, you know, a handful of herbs or even, you know, what would be really great is um, making, you know, a blackberry reduction sauce to go with this chicken dish. That would be amazing. So, you know, we'll grab a bunch of, you know, blackberries and work on that today. Um, That is a benefit I hadn't even thought of. Mm. Yep. That's great. So back to the the weight journey here for a second. Um, I know that there are other forms of weight loss out there that are quite invasive. Mm. Uh, gastro uh, bypass surgery, for instance, is one example. But there's others, um, inserting balloons in your stomach and so on. Um, liposuction, another one. <clears throat> I've known two people who've gone through various types of surgery to... Uh, lose weight, um, one gastric bypass, one lipo. Um, and in both cases, I did not notice a significant change in their overall feeling about themselves or how they approached the world. Um, so there's some, I, I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. I think maybe what's happening is psychologically, they know they've just cheated. So instead of doing the hard work of earning it and actually doing 
you know, actually doing portion control, if that's would have would have helped in the case of a balloon, let's say, or, you know, just having a normal amount of diet and exercise uh, to slowly whittle away any extra fat or whatever. I think they felt, I'm going to guess, because I don't really know. I think they felt like they could have done it had they just done it, had they just committed to it and then they didn't. And now they've lost the weight and they look great, but I can't imagine that helped them psychologically as much as they had hoped it would. Any, any thoughts on that? Um, I don't, I don't know for sure. I've, I've also had friends who've done the same and I've seen the same struggles. I know that even though my journey is, it was a long journey. So I started being proactive in 2012 and I got pregnant in 2016. Um, so I hit my weight loss goal a month before I got pregnant. I lost 124 pounds. Surprise. And then I got pregnant um, and I gained weight during the pregnancy. And it, it took me time to get the weight back off. Um, but there are still times where, you know, I am getting dressed and I can't, I like look at a pair of pants and I'm like, there's no way I, that's going to fit, you know? And so do you, I look in the mirror and it's just not the person, you know, I'm fighting with the confidence of who is in the mirror, who other people see and who uh, that person is on the inside who still feels like she doesn't belong. So when you are going to the mirror but have not yet reached it, you expect to see somebody different than who shows up in the mirror. Totally. I do. Is that a common occurrence, like nearly daily, all the time? or um, It happens less and less. Um, when I've, like, my weight has fluctuated up, it definitely happens more. Um, but when I'm being more, um, more strict and more diligent, you know, I, I know when my habits are bad and that it's usually when I'm depressed and stressed um, because those were triggers for me for overeating in the past. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so if you could, let's say, take a magic pill um, and let's say we're over, very overweight at the time, like three, 400 pounds or something, even, even heavier than you are today, but you could take a magic pill. That pill would remove all of the negative effects other than the weight itself. So you wouldn't have any joint issues. You wouldn't have any cardiovascular issues. You're not going to die earlier. You're not going to have heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you still look exactly the same. Would you still feel like that is just not the way you want to live? And and if so, why? Um, yeah, n- no, I wouldn't take it. Um, I just never felt good in that skin. It just didn't feel right either close or too tight or too loose. Um, it's very uncomfortable. You know, you get on a plane and you almost wonder if you need to buy two seats. You can't take a Ferris wheel with your kids because you're way too much. You're restricted to do things that people should be able to do, right? Um, the highlight of a non-skill victory uh, that I had was being able to um, – go and do the um the skydiving simulator it's like when i finally hit under 180 
because of my height, uh, they were like, okay, like I could sign the waiver and I could go and do, do it because for whatever reason, my weight before was just too much for the machine to handle, Mm -hmm. um, which was like eye opening for me. There are so many things that hold you back. I see. Okay. Well, I think we're going to get back to kind of your childhood in a minute here, but you talked about uh, giving birth and I remember a conversation we had a while back where you were talking about somebody else who was going through pregnancy, not, not yourself. And, um, and you were sort of lamenting the fact that you couldn't have the conversation you wanted to have with the uh, mother to be (laughs) because the father to be was, you know, in the room or whatever. Uh, And, and I thought that was an interesting conversation, not well, first of all, why do you feel like that's a thing that you have to tiptoe around? But then secondly, I think that there's this, there's this strange divide between the sexes about knowledge about what happens during pregnancy. And I mean, other than maybe a medical doctor or somebody who really specializes in this field, a doula, let's say. So for the audience's sake, um, I'd like you to educate us. Um, what, what don't most men know about women and pregnancy? So I'm going to assume you mean pregnancy and childbirth. I don't even know what I mean when I'm asking the question. That's why I'm asking the question. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's background here uh, that most people don't know. Um, so when I was pregnant with my first son, um, his dad was... Um, one child of seven and they were all born at home by midwife. Um, and his mom was a teacher, um, of what is known as the Bradley method, which is natural childbirth. And, um, they basically go through this process that starts at about 20 weeks where the mother and father go through a, um, a really intense childbirth preparation course together once a week until the child's born that teaches them a lot about um, what happens to the woman's body during pregnancy, during childbirth, and after childbirth, as well as lactation and uh, breastfeeding. And nobody ever told me about any of this stuff. And I had plenty of women in my family. There are a lot of men in my family, but I had aunts, grandmothers. I had, I have two moms, an adopted mom and a biological mom, like plenty of women. And all of them had children and none of them told me about any of it. Um, so I, I feel very fortunate that my first husband was not only... Um, raised in a family that was very open and educated and a proponent of understanding what happened with a woman's body during this time, but also that like he was on board with getting me on board for, for this experience. And I just went in like eyes wide open, have to know everything. 
because um and because of seeing um one one of my grandmothers die in the hospital I did not want to have any children in the hospital so I opted as well for natural childbirth <clears throat> natural childbirth to be clear in this context at home or, or, or at a doula's or yeah so yeah and you can have a natural childbirth at the hospital so um a natural childbirth with a midwife mm-hmm. um and we didn't know like when we first uh got pregnant and um I mentioned miscarriages before, but when we got pregnant and we knew that this one was going to be successful, we didn't know where we were going to end up because we were in university and we knew we were going to be moving um, by the time he was born. So um, when we moved here to Austin, we found the Austin Birthing Center and they practiced Bradley Method, so that was a win. Um, And they had like six birthing rooms and we're like, great, perfect. Um, We will have our child here. So... um, Natural childbirth, meaning without um, medical intervention, and also without as much um, intervention as possible. So that would be like epidurals or yeah, some absolutely, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. no epidurals. And during um, my labor, the midwife checked in maybe once every hour, mm-hmm. which when you're in hospital, it's many, many more touch points. And you have everything strapped to you. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There are, uh, there's a lid for every pot, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone has their different levels of comfortability, and there are different, definitely, pregnancies that have complications that medical intervention is 100% necessary. And so, um, when I have friends or people I know around me that get pregnant, I almost feel obligated to tell them or ask them if they would like to know more. Um, It's more about permission because there are some women who just do not want to know. Why is that? Why would they be afraid of information that's about to help them? (laughs) Seems like that would be the, they'd be gravitating toward anyone who can teach them anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's squirmish, right? So one of my friends is afraid of blood. Uh, She's, she's, she's like, veins at the side of blood and there's a lot of blood in the process, right? So after after a woman gives birth to her child, she then has the afterbirth and that's a term that a lot of people have heard, but do you know what it actually is, right? It's so the baby comes out and the baby's attached to the, the umbilical cord which is attached to the placenta which is still inside the mom. And so the baby's out, there's the umbilical cord. They cut the umbilical cord, but the placenta is still inside the mom with the umbilical cord. If you pull on the umbilical cord, the placenta may tear or it could tear the uterine wall, which could be lethal. Like that's horrible. That's like a horrible outcome. So your uterus is basically designed to cramp down to its natural size which it goes from the size of a watermelon to the size of a grapefruit within an hour after giving birth. It's very painful. And midwives and doctors and nurses are trained to, after the child's born, to like massage your uh, uterine wall, which is all the way up here, 
when a baby's born to massage and, your and uh, underneath your rib cage for those yeah listening. your uterine wall from um, under your rib cage all the way down and to help guide it um, down to above your pubic bone because it should be about the size of a grapefruit but before you leave the hospital um, and then it will continue to shrink down to its itty bitty size of about I would say a penny <clears throat> um, some women are just like like. No, because having anything big inside your body is undesirable. Right? Scary. It's scary and it's ugly and it stretches me out and all of these other things that are like, I will never be the same again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for men too, right? So you asked, you know, why men um, or what men don't know, it's the same. Uh, and some men just like get squeamish and run away or walk away uh they don't want to know about episiotomies or perineal massage um i don't think i've heard of either of those things (laughs) (laughs) um well perineal massages are developed to prevent the um outcome of an episiotomy um what is this podcast rated (laughs) it's definitely explicit so (laughs) you're you're all good (laughs) you can swear and yell you gotta okay lots of options (laughs) so anatomy is I can talk about mm-hmm. genitalia and anatomy. I expect you to after this. <laughs> yes, please don't take your clothes off, though. That would be no. a plus. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that might I, get us banned. Don't worry. Um, so there is, um, I mean, the the opening of, of a vagina is very small. And when a woman is going through childbirth, it has to expand at least up to nine or ten centimeters. That's, that's the, that's the, uh, gauge that most um, doctors and nurses and midwives uh, get to. So when you're like, oh, how many centimeters? And you're like hearing about people that are super excited and talking on social media about like, oh, she's in labor, five centimeters. Mm-hmm. Which I totally never get why anyone would want to share how <laughs> big their vaginas are on Facebook. <laughs> That's really weird. Um, but it's cool. Whatever floats your boat. Um, so That's not a particularly stretchy part of your body once it gets to a certain size. Mm -hmm. So perineal massage was designed to exercise that particular area, the lower part of your vagina. And for those of you who are listening, not watching, um, I'm holding out my my two uh, fingers, my pointer and my middle finger, both of my hands, like I'm about... To do something mm-hmm. that's, you just should watch it on YouTube. <laughs> or look it up, but make sure that there's no young children around or anyone that's going to get offended. But you basically get massage oil of your choice or uh, the Bradley method instructors are like, get olive oil, we don't care. Um, or primrose oil, which is actually very good for pregnant women for, for a number of other reasons. Um, but, um, and you like massage the area inside down so that as you can train the opening to to open better not faster but the elasticity you're Mm -hmm. training the elasticity Mm -hmm. um and and this is something you do how at what point in 32 weeks Uh of pregnancy it's a couple's it should be a couple's thing or a trusted partner if you are going through pregnancy um, as a surrogate or as a single mom. It should definitely 
be with someone obviously that you trust intimately enough to be um, down in your private areas. Mm-hmm. Why oh, I'm so uncomfortable talking about this <laughs> after like perineal massage, get your fingers in there and just like, um, and the goal is, is because you can tear. So that's what you can naturally tear, um, which is the preference for some uh, because it heals better. Or um, some doctors would just prefer to cut, and that's what's called an episiotomy. What is they're trying to prevent is a tear all the way down to the anus, which is extremely painful and can take so long. Like just, I know that sounds painful and all of us don't want to be sitting right now because we're thinking about <laughs> it, but it's, you know, it is a reality, right? It's just all I the would way. imagine it's also a lot of bacteria. Um, Correct. And therefore that would add extra complications to healing. Yes. So an episiotomy, if, um, if the child is down the birth canal, but the mother is not... Um, dilating as fast as she needs to or like she's stuck at like a seven or an eight the doctor will ask permission or just cut if the doc if the baby's life is in danger and try not to um you know try to hold it so it doesn't tear mm-hmm. um i remember during both no not during the second during my first um birth that my midwife was holding me right at the base of my my vagina um and i she said i had a scrape i didn't have a tear mm-hmm. for some women it's a vanity thing some women don't want to tear they want a perfect perfect scar that can just be stitched up so they say if i get to that point just give me an episiotomy okay that's fine i'm not against it but it was just a a tool i learned in the practice that I, that I chose to, to go into. And, um, for the woman that I knew that went to the hospital that didn't do the birthing classes, um, that I did. And then hearing about them being horrified coming out of the hospital. I didn't know that I was going to be coming home in a diaper. I didn't know that I was going to tear, like even them being surprised about the things that were happening to their body I felt like was such a disservice to them and their spouses because could you imagine being someone's partner and just not knowing what was going to happen to their body after something so awesome? Mm-hmm. Like you just deliver this new human being into your your family, but someone's been wounded and someone's gone through a serious loss. Yeah, that's another thing that I don't think a lot of people know about that really probably should is the uh, whole postpartum depression thing. Did you go through that? Yeah, both times. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting to know that. Uh, And what would you describe it as? Could you point to it and say there was a moment that it happened? Did it happen immediately afterwards? What did it feel like compared to other types of depression? Did you know it was going to end because you had gone through it once? Was it easier to go through the second time? Um, yeah, that was a series of questions. Mm-hmm. So the first time, I did not know I was depressed until um, someone 
called me and um, I was I was in a church community at the time and someone called me and they said, um, oh, I was waiting to come and visit until your mom left. And I said, well, like my mom never comes and visits. And, um, and I had no feeling, no feeling. So it wasn't the kind of depression where you're like crying all the time. It was a kind of depression where I had absolutely no feeling, but internally at the same time, um, and I can say this now because it's been years while we were, me and my son were just driving down the highway to, um, get groceries or run an errand. I just had the urge to drive like off the overpass. Wow. So I knew something was wrong went and talked with someone and um they prescribed me um some some safe antidepressants since I was breastfeeding and that seemed to work um for that time in my life with the second one I was actually getting depression during my pregnancy um and I was very much against taking any any um psychotropics at the time so my midwife per- prescribed 5-HTP, which is just a natural mood stabilizer, which really helped. And I had minimal postpartum depression, but it was a lot of crying. Um, and most of it was that he and I, my, my son and I, did not have a very good um, uh, like breastfeeding bond at all. Um, his mouth, my breast no compatibility and I was like you're gonna be breastfed and he's like no I'm not um and he got to the point where he would literally just scream anytime I tried to feed him um and I wasn't making enough milk um so I was I situationally depressed about that's that piece because I could do it before why can't I do it again Mm -hmm. right I was in a very different situation in my life a hundred pounds lighter trying to run a company and like trying to do it all. But Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't like I knew it was going to end, but uh, it was a different type of depression with the second one for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think we're about to go a little deeper even. Um, (laughs) No no pun intended. All right. Hold Um, on to your horses, everyone. Yeah. yeah. So I know you, you did a presentation at uh, creative morning about trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you had kind of a crazy upbringing, uh, a lot of drugs in the house. Um, you, as you said, you were, um, you were adopted at one point. Um, would you talk a little bit about sort of that backstory, just kind of set the stage a little bit, because I think this is kind of useful backstory for, um, your weight loss journey as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, when I was born, uh, both my parents were addicted to meth, and um, I believe that my father confirmed to me a few years ago that uh, my mom was using when she was pregnant with me and very may well had been using when I was born. So um, I was a very sick infant uh, in the hospital, coming home from the hospital, and um there were a lot of things that my biological parents did not do well. So <clears throat> me and my half-sister uh, ended up being put in the foster care system. 
And we ended up uh, getting adopted uh, by a uh, Filipino family who were Roman Catholic, very strict family. Um, my adopted dad was a retired Navy captain, and like we went to church every Sunday. Um, nope. We went to church every Saturday night. Um, Sunday was the Mormon life I lived. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that just in a minute. Getting too. everything all, <laughs> all mixed up here. Um, my sister and I ended up being adopted by a Filipino family who were Roman Catholic. They were very strict. My dad was a retired Navy captain, and we went to church every Saturday night for Mass. Um, and a lot of things that we did in that home groomed me to be very good at taking care of the home and family. Um, and after a certain point of living there and knowing we were adopted, uh, we were given permission to seek out our biological family, and we did. This. You know, every, everyone wants to know where they came from. Um, even people who like grew up with, you know, mom and dad, their whole lives still do like 23 and me and do, you know, trips back to their homeland and just like want a sense of belonging. And, uh, we were navigating, um, through some newspapers one day, just like randomly. And we saw a familiar face in the wedding announcements and, um, referenced back, a lookbook that our social worker had given us. And it was indeed my aunt who had gotten married. And we like cross-referenced what store she was working at and called all the stores in San Diego. And like, it's this whole crazy story. Like sounds like it's made up in Hallmark movie. We, I could sell it to Hallmark <laughs> if you're interested. Um, and got reconnected with biological family and ended up moving in with, um, my biological mom by the time I was 11. And, um, that was a really interesting time. Like there were the good parts and then there were the very bad parts of that. Um, the good parts were, I learned a lot about living like in the land versus living in this house and like learning how to be a housekeeper and like be the, the woman that supported the family and the man. Um, my biological mom was like very, um, like Stevie Nicks, like, you know, just like floated around like with the wind type of a person. Uh, but she had this amazing garden, loved animals and just a really, um, a really loving heart. But she turned back over to drugs and that just ended up not working out very well for all of us. Like all of me, my sister, uh, all my other siblings, her fiance, just total mess, um, train wreck. And, um, yeah. Um, yeah, times were hard. Um, I don't know how far you want me to go. Well, I remember at one point <clears throat> you told me about a story about a helicopter. Mm. And I think that might be a, a useful example of one of the things that happened at that time frame. Mm. Yeah. So the talk um, I gave at Creative Morning, the theme was the end. And, uh, the night, uh, that you're referencing, I knew was the end of my relationship with my mom. So what had happened in that year was my mom had started using drugs and acting really strange, sleeping all day, up all night, um, pulled all the kids out of school. We were homeschooling. I was, I basically went from being a free range individual, like living like a kid, um, 
doing things normal kids do, 11, 12, almost 13, to like reverting back to what my adopted parents expected of me um, and was cooking the meals for everyone in the home, doing laundry and dishes and just maintaining some semblance of um, of a routine. And, it and that's getting, because she wasn't doing that? Yeah, she wasn't doing it and it was expected. Um, if it was not done, I would be yelled at and punished and hit. So I didn't want any of those things. Um, I, I cower to abuse and being yelled at. Um, it actually, uh, what it does to me physically is, um, like it shuts down my, uh, my gastrointestinal organs. Like it's a mess. Um, like biologically things aren't good. Um, so I didn't want any of that to happen. And, um, so I just did it without even being asked or prompted and tried to make myself invisible for, for, uh, those months. And it was getting close to my birthday. Um, and my mom came up with this idea. She wanted to throw a party for myself and my brother, uh, which seemed odd because she didn't like any of my friends or his friends and didn't want to invite any of them and invited all of his friends and, or her friends and, um, uh, a con- had a concert, you know, there, and it was definitely just an opportunity to get, get high and have fun. Um, and at some point she got in an argument with her fiance and it became physical and he called the cops on her because she was getting physical with him. And she uh, told all five of us kids to run. Um, and so my instinct of I don't want to get yelled at or hit kicked in. And we ran and we hid um, in a ditch nearby because we lived in a pretty big property out um, out in the country, back like back area of uh, San Diego. And... Um, waited for quite some time we heard the cops come just stuck it out waited waited and then came the helicopters um they were looking for us uh so suddenly later i learned um she had told the cops that we were kidnapped by someone in the family um and had sent the cops on a wild goose chase for said family member which had nothing to do with that and it just um that was wild that was wild. So my mom was detained that night. Um, uh, and for several nights after my, um, brother's dad, her fiance left that night with him, um, and filed a restraining order. And my sister and I, and two brothers were left alone for several days with no adult supervision. And that's how I knew, like, I need to get out of this mess. Well, that's a terrible story. <clears throat> I'm really glad you made it out of there. And so then you ran. You got out of there. You took yourself out of that situation. Yeah. Um, the other piece of trauma I, I wanted to dig into a little bit that's it's related. This is all kind of a related theme here. Um, you There was a shooting at your school. Sorry. No one's going to believe all this stuff happened to me. Well, 
<laughs> Sorry. Mean, I mean, it's... I'm laughing because I'm like, yes, indeed. And and many other things have happened to you that are all worth talking about. But I don't want to... This isn't... Um, I'm not trying to get people to pity you. I, I just think that this is a useful thread. And if we can tie it all together, I think this will be interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the thing that happened at school? Yeah. Um. So... I am I appreciate you bringing it up because I've been I've been thinking about it recently. And there've been a lot of um suppressed memories because it's been a while. So, um when I was in high school, I was a freshman when Columbine happened, and that was very scary for us. Um and we started implementing policies and procedures and drills. Um, which were also very scary. And the school that I was at um, at the time was an open campus, which means, um, for those of you who are confused by that, um, we had uh, classrooms that were just out in the open instead of like being inside of a dome. <clears throat> and so uh, we were in class and... Um, we heard gunshots and we just did, we thought it was a drill, to be completely honest. Um, and we're like, oh, wow, they're taking this to the next level. Because uh, they were all surprise drills. You know, they don't want you to know they're running a drill for a, you know, school shooting. But we were then surprised um, to hear closer gunfire and then... Um, crossfire so there weren't um many injuries um except for the the shooter um he was injured and arrested um but that uh plus other incidents I had I've had with guns really kept me skittish and shy from guns and gun issues for a very long time uh the individual himself was in my math class and sat, uh, very close to me. And to be that close to someone who woke up and decided that that was what was going to happen that day was also very scary. Um, and I've never really tried to dig in to the mindset, you know, of someone who makes those kinds of choices. Um, and, um, that's just, uh, scary um situation I wouldn't wish it on anyone I mean just hearing the shots alone and crossfire and knowing or not knowing if your friends are out there your teachers like innocent bystanders like you are they going to come in your classroom like what's happening this is before people had you know many people had cell phones so I didn't have one I was poor so we didn't have, I didn't have like a mobile phone to call anyone and let them know that I was okay or um, call nine one. There was a, there was nothing. So <clears throat> when you and I started um, talking a handful of years ago, you told me at least part of this story, <clears throat> the parts of it that you were willing to tell me or uh, that you could remember. At that point, 
I was surprised because I, I told you that I shot and stuff and I, I <clears throat> I'd gotten quite into uh, pistol shooting um, maybe four or five years before we met. And um, I kind of alluded to this, by the way, on the podcast I did with um, Grant Shaw. You were the person I was referring to on that episode. Just for those who are li- active listeners. <clears throat> but to my complete surprise, you asked to go shooting. You asked to learn to get past this, to learn something about guns in a productive, positive environment as opposed to this negative. I mean, to me, honestly, I was shocked that you would even consider it, let alone actually go through with it. Mm. Um, So first, let's talk about that. Like, how did you get to that mindset where you wanted to get past it as opposed to just never touch a gun ever again or think about it guns ever again? So it wasn't just about the shooting. Um, I was at a really interesting intersection of my life where I wanted to overcome a lot of things that I felt were holding me back. And I wanted to also start armoring myself up um, and building, um, building tools that would help me feel more confident. And I know I never shared that with you, but I felt like this was an opportunity to take something, an opportunity that would probably never had been presented to me by anybody else to overcome a trauma that um, had stuck with me for so long. And it wasn't just about like the shooter at the school. It was many years ago when my sister held a revolver to my head and I had no idea if it was loaded. I had no clue. So it wasn't just the one. It was the other instance. And um, and there were also guns around because of your mother's affiliates as well. Absolutely. You know, and, and not that, like, this wasn't the scary part, but I guess I should have been annoyed by it, but... You know, my grandparents also carried, like, my grandpa would carry this pistol in his waistband um, of his joggers when he went to go close his bar. And I'm like, that's not, that's not a holster. It's not a holster. <laughs> well, he should have been concerned because I'm like, <laughs> it's not particularly safe. I don't care how many donuts you eat. That is not a holster. Um, <laughs> but you had presented this story about what had happened with you in your past. And um, I just took it upon myself to say, like, I want to go because I've had this thing and it's been haunting me. And I feel like I need to accept it. And instead of it being on my back, I need to just bring it, bring it with me. I just need to like say, Hey friend, you're back here, but like, let's take this journey together instead. I mean, I, I was super surprised. I, I had never even considered inviting you to go shoot just because I knew the story. And mm-hmm. so I was, you know, yeah. um, me telling you my story was not an attempt to get you to get into guns. It was more just, I understand where you were coming from. So that was very surprising to me. <clears throat> so we took you in there and, and it probably took hours before we got the first round fired. Um, and that first round was the only round that was shot that day. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of 
talking and working through it to get you to the point where Correct. That, that one round, I mean, very proud of you for having gone through that and coming out the other side. But, but the funny part is then you started going and you know, the next time you'd shoot twice and the next time you'd shoot like maybe twice and then you'd leave and then you could shoot twice more, you mm-hmm. know? So it would, you'd never get even through a full magazine. It would, it would just, and it went like that for months. Um, and then just one day you shot an entire magazine by yourself. And then like you told me, I don't know, maybe a month later or something like you had gone to the range by yourself and had actually shot a couple magazines just by yourself. And that was really impressive seeing you really commit to learning how to do it, but also to do it on your own and not need anybody to babysit you. You, you were just doing it. And then as recently as today, this morning, you took a a class as well. Mm -hmm. How did that go? Yeah. So I, uh, took a break for about nine months and, um, coincidentally after I got a new pistol, so not really good timing. I hadn't had a, a lot of time to train with my new pistol. And, um, so I took a break and, uh, coming back has been, has been difficult. So I, uh, signed up to do a more tactical lesson to just work on defense and being quicker. Um, especially, because the purpose for me to have a weapon isn't to be like, now it's not to have overcome the fear of having a gun around or being around guns, but now it's a home defense or a personal defense tool. And so um, it actually went really well today. Uh, we only like went through 50 rounds, um, but two of those 50 rounds were in in the no zone, you know, where it wouldn't actually, you know, do harm to someone if they were coming to attack me. But we went through several skills um, and drills that would um, probably be really helpful going forward. I feel more comfortable. But my my deal is is confidence and hesitation. And that's really, it's funny. It's a theme with everything. Mm. Yep. Well, you certainly have enough reasons to have concerns about confidence, despite the fact that you um, have a lot going for you. But so I want to talk, you mentioned uh, your adopted father and being a Roman Catholic. Yeah. So then you switched um, to becoming a Mormon at some point. So can you talk through that a little bit? Yeah. So I talked about uh, going to live with my biological mom and her being very like Stevie Nicks and no structure, free range life. The one thing I missed was the structure of the religion. So um, one day the Mormons came to come talk to us about Jesus and I'm like, sign me up. I'm on board. Go to church regularly. Cool. Love it. Want the community. Um, So it wasn't about the religion. It was about the community. I mean, I was... 11. It's hard to say for sure how, how I felt about religion or community at that point. Um, I know how I feel now. I know now I felt and feel like it was more about the community, right? Um, I definitely remember when I was Catholic feeling like I wanted to be a nun because I felt very devoted but I don't remember why. So back to the Mormon thing. Um, 
And so I was baptized, but there was no follow through uh, because of the circumstances of what happened with my mom. Uh, Later, when I was a teenager and had moved out of that life, I had a more stable home. I lived with my, my biological grandparents and I had a friend group that were Mormon and that was great. So we all like, we went to seminary together. It was a Bible study class in the morning before school. I know it's crazy. Like you get up early to study scriptures before school, <laughs> like psycho. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. Um, and we'd go to dances together and church activities and hikes and, and church every Sunday. And that actually, that does sound nice. Actually. It that, was nice. Yeah. I, I had um, a really terrible freshman year where I did a lot of things that could have kept me in the cycle of where my mom and dad are and just decided that I didn't want that for myself. And my sophomore year, I found a new friend group and that was the rest of my high school. All of my friends in the LDS church and that that was the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. So then you went to uh, BYU, but in Idaho, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, I did. And so eventually you left the church. Yes. Um, which you can tell us about or not. That's up to you. But um, I'm kind of curious. Well, so I'll say one thing about Mormons that I think um, is kind of an interesting factoid. Apparently the CIA recruits out of the Mormons quite a bit. Hmm. Um, And the reason they do that is because they're very industrious, very wholesome, very trustworthy. They have like a long lineage that they can go back and check. That's, you know, largely people who are law abiding and it's easy to see that they haven't been corrupted by these third parties. Um, Just kind of makes sense. Easy pool to fish from. Um, One other thing about them though, is they're, uh, back to your, you know, being a professional chef and all this, uh, is they have a strong sense of survivalist. Um, they have large stockpiles of food and it's part, actually part of the religion. Is it not? Am I misremembering that? Yeah. So, um, there are these bylaws, um, that the, uh, Mormons ascribe to, um, and I don't know if it's in the word of wisdom or not, or in the doctrine and covenants. It's been a while since I've revisited the doctrine. However, it is widely taught um, about food storage and about um, being being able to sustain like 72-hour kits. There's a scout culture in the Mormon church, so a lot of survivalism is taught, not just with the men, but in the women. Like the women youth groups are also, you know, taught um, not as uh wild as the men you know (laughs) we're we're taught more things like sewing and cooking and making sure we know how to make the perfect dutch oven dessert um for when (laughs) the men are done uh kinds of things it's delicious but canning gardening but but yeah i mean it's a it's a very um it's a very homey culture but they're always prepared they're always prepared yeah. So um, you got married. Yes. <clears throat> Which under, time? In the marriage. <laughs> okay. Um, in the in, church. In the Mormon church. In the Mormon church. Yes. 
<clears throat> so there's a lot of uh, kind of pomp and circumstance around getting married in the Mormon church. Can you enlighten us for those of us who are not familiar with it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I uh, was going to BYU, Idaho, and met my first husband there. And he proposed. I said yes. And we wanted to get married in the temple. So that is where most uh, LDS young men and women go to get married if they want to gain favor in the eyes of their family and their congregation. Because if you're not married in the temple, then you just have a common-law marriage. And a common-law marriage is not a marriage with the eyes of God and angels as well as, you know, the state. So it's, it's very, um, it's very particular. So we had to not only apply for all the state licenses and everything to get married, but we had to, um, declare our worthiness with our local bishop, which is the individual who presides over like the area in which we go to church every Sunday. And then we had to do an interview with the steak president, which he's not the guy who makes all your steaks taste good. Um, but he's the guy, like, if you think about like a regional manager, he manages all of the, all of the little churches that there are many bishops of. Um, and then once we did that, we had to go and I had to get garments at, at the, uh, temple. I had to get what they call endowed. I had to make covenants with God, um, so that I could then make covenants with my then-to-be husband. The thing about the Mormon churches is that no one can enter the temple unless they have um, a temple recommendation card. So they have to go through that process in order to enter the temple. So I had no family members witness my first wedding. Um, Interesting. Mm-hmm. God is your only witness? And my ex-husband's family mm, okay they all witnessed and like two of my friends because i wanted people that knew me there so because they had all gone th- they had already been accepted in the church That's yeah why they were allowed yeah in. they were all mm, worthy members of um of the church right and so you were given a new name um under this yes okay Oh, right. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. You want to go through that? That's no, part. I, I was just curious if that was something you wanted to go into. It's part of the covenant making um, with the endowment. You're given um, handshakes and names and different covenants. Um, and all of this is also super searchable online. Um, it's not necessarily something I talk about like openly um, because I still have friends who are Mormon and mm. I know that they believe in it very much and i i'm not uh, one that wants to defy or defile uh someone else's beliefs just for the sake of you know making fun or getting a rise out of it so but you you didn't really believe when you were a part of the church from what i can gather i had a sense of belonging mm-hmm. um but there was something inside of me that just like I'm here because it is safer than where I could be. Do you have any sense of how many uh, people who attend the church were like you, who were just part of the community and wanted to, you know, be married in the community and loved the location and or anything like that? Where 
they probably, if it had been another religion, that would have been the place they spent their time. Yeah, I mean, I sense there's a lot of that in many religions um, or communities. You know, I think all of us are finding a sense of belonging. You migrate from a church to a new group of friends or a, a cult or um, I really made a bad face there um, or um, another religion. That's actually one of the things I really like about religion, <clears throat> not for me specifically, but in general, where I think it does give a lot of people a lot of hope in the fact that they have a friend group now. They have a group that they can rely on and yeah. ask questions of, or if they get sick, people notice like, ooh, you're not looking so hot and go over to their house and make sure that they're getting fed and all that stuff. And <clears throat> that sense of belonging community actually, I think, keeps people alive a lot longer uh, just by having a, a strong community, a friend group to just check in on them. Yeah, like the Mormon church are really set up to take care of each other. Once a month, you have uh, home teachers that come and they make sure you're doing okay. Like, everything good with your family? Do you guys need anything? Like, I noticed your lawn's not mowed. Like, I can get my son Billy over here next week, get taken care of for you because, you know, your husband's traveling a lot uh, with the sisters. They call the women sisters and the men brothers. They have visiting teachers that also come once a month. If someone's sick, they set up a meal train. Like it is a community set up to take care of each other, period. <clears throat> that, there's a lot to be said about that. That's actually really great. It's kind of just wish you didn't have the religion aspect forced on you to have all those things. But yeah, <clears throat> maybe you just can't separate them. Maybe you just have to have both. Otherwise, you don't have either. Maybe because there's not um, a sense of commonality. Yeah. So when you left the church, um, first of all, how did that go? I mean, how did they take it? Um, they in the church did everything they could uh, to keep me in the church um, as much as, you know, they tried. Um, but I rejected all attempts. I was ready to go um, at, at the point of my departure my marriage had gone sideways and um, that had a lot to do with the church and a lot to do with uh, my ex-husband. So I didn't want to have anything to do with any of it anymore. Um, and once I was excommunicated, all of my friends in the church cut off completely. So I had no community anymore. Um, so that was gone. And completely abandoned. Um, and obviously my ex-husband's family stopped talking to me, which I wasn't interested in talking to them anyway. Um, but my family were very happy to have what they said, to have me back. Mm. Like, it is so nice to have you back. It feels like you're not um, just following whatever anymore. You are you. You can say whatever you want, whatever's on your mind again, without feeling like someone's judging you. And that that was a nice feeling. So when you meet other ex-Mormons, because <clears throat> I get the sense that you meet them a lot. Yes, um, I do. <laughs> I don't, well, first of all, is there a particular reason why? It, are there a lot of them in Austin or is it, did you just have a secret code word or <laughs> no, <laughs> how, do you, how I, do you find ex-Mormons? I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm an ex-Mormon. So I do put my education out on my LinkedIn profile, which is my only publicly facing social media. And so it says I went to BYU, right? Which is actually a very good school. 
Um, and apparently their football team's awesome. So yay for, for the Cougars, right? But um, when I meet other former Mormons, they out themselves first to me because they hide all of that status wherever I may find it. And I do research people before I meet them. Um, for example, I had an interview the other day and I was talking with the CEO and I had actually commented and said, like, you know, I'm, um, I'm raising two boys and one is in scouts and one is a former scout. And I do have to say, like, I appreciate that you went through the full program and that you're an Eagle Scout. Can you tell me about your Eagle Scout project? And he almost looked deer in the headlights that I had found out that information. And I almost feel like he was worried that I found out more information about him. But like I hadn't gone any deeper. Um, but it turns out that he and I do share that fact in common. I didn't want to know why. Okay, whatever. Like that journey doesn't matter to me. I'm not trying to start up a we hate the church club.com. I have no interest in that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I still have friends that are, you know, a part of the church. My local um, church members that I, I were friends with here stopped talking to me, but the people I went to high school with back home and some of my college mates were still friends. So that's interesting. So there's some things around the Mormon church going back in time and uh, finding people who should be, have been baptized. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And it's this whole thing um, because uh, the eldest church owns ancestry.com and they are um, part of the religion's mission is to ensure that they can get as many souls into heaven as possible. So knowing that mission with that lens, what they're trying to do is take um, everyone alive or deceased um, and ensure that they have a path to get to heaven. So they do all of this research on ancestry um, and find pathways to like great grandmothers, cousins, aunts, uncles, whatever. And um, the youth go to the temple and they, they perform what they call proxy or baptisms for the dead. And so the youth will go in a baptismal font and they will perform a baptism on behalf of someone who has passed away. And what that means to the LDS are um, that... Just because that individual has been baptized into the Mormon religion does not mean that they're automatically going to heaven. They will still have a choice in the afterlife to accept the teachings. If they do, they've already bypassed the um, bypassed the ceremony on earth, which is required to then get into the next level of heaven. And that's why it is important for them to perform that. Um, And then there's a ceremony where they also are given uh, the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then if they find that that individual is married, um, they go through the endowment and the marriage ceremony for that individual and their partner. So they go through the entire um, uh, ceremony to ensure that they're able to reach the highest kingdom of heaven if they accept the doctrine. Because 
the Mormons believe that after we die and go to heaven, we are still practicing and preaching to uh, lost souls when we get to heaven until the second coming. So just to reiterate, just to make sure that the audience caught all that, <clears throat> the Mormon church is using Ancestry.com to find people that haven't been baptized, going back and baptizing them after their death, and then saying that now they have a pathway into heaven. Like, did I get all that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes you think twice about using Ancestry.com, doesn't it? Um but it is an interesting idea. I remember a friend of mine, um, he's now a VC, uh, Mark Cranach. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. He invented a religion called Cranachism, and it was just a joke. It was you know him playing around. Um, but he's like, the only thing you have to do to be part of Cranachism uh, is to have said that Mark Cranach is your God. That's mm. it. That's the only thing. And I'm like, well, what if I get people to accidentally say it, you know, just like repeat it? He's like, yeah, that counts. I'm like, okay, well, how, how do you get out of Mark Cranach? How do you become an uncranachite or whatever, an X one? He's like, you can't, there's no getting out of it. Cause it's, it's just the one, that one test. This kind of reminds me a little of that. If you can just force people to say, oh, you're this religion, you've long been dead. Uh, <laughs> now you're a part of the religion. It's not automatic. So in their opinion or in their belief, they still have to accept it sure. in the afterlife in order for those gates to be open. Yeah, just it strikes me awfully close. Um, it's okay. Yeah. I watched the South Park episode two, so I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm on the same page. Yeah. So it, is that marked in Ancestry.com somehow that that uh, event has occurred? Or how do they record that information? They record it in their temple um, registries. I do not know if it is recorded on Ancestry.com. Interesting. It seems like a lot of work if you're not somehow feeding it back into the system, but maybe there's other reasons for doing it. I never got to work in the Ancestry department. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a department. Great. So let's change the topic again. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> it's been deep. <laughs> so you have recently started a new podcast um, that you are the CEO of. Am I getting that right? Um, I will be the CEO of the parent company. Yeah. I am currently the CMO of the CMO show. CMO show. So tell us, tell us all about that. Yep. So the CMO show uh, was... Um, basically built to elevate the profiles of CMOs and marketing leaders. And um, it's quite amazing. We actually record here in the studio. Yeah, you're producing it here. We are. And um, we are, hopefully we'll have an episode or two uh, out when this one launches. Mm-hmm. Um, but our goal is really to attract uh, marketing leadership talent and get to know what like what they're good at and how they got there and also understand the pains that they have in retaining their jobs. Because what we found, we as in my founding partners in, in Team CMO, which is the parent company I alluded to earlier, is we found that there is a really interesting um, longevity issue happening in in the seat of the CMO or marketing leader. And 
we're trying to understand why we're trying to get to the root of it. And no two CMOs have the same answer, um, which we find interesting. So we're doing research. We're trying to understand if it's a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and if it needs to be solved, how? If it doesn't need to be solved, then why are there so many articles getting written about it um, is, is the other piece of it. But also uh, to build a resource and a community that is actually delivering value to the CMOs. Yeah. So how do you differentiate? I mean, there's a lot of different uh, marketing podcasts out there. How mm-hmm. are you planning on differentiating yourself in this in this regard? Because we're cooler. You're cooler. All yeah, right. we're newer. We're That's cooler. A better name anyway. Of course. Well, no, it's it's not just that. We are we are trying That's enough right there. We're trying <laughs> we are trying to solve a problem. We're not trying to sell us or we're not trying to sell anything. There are other podcasts um out there that are clearly trying to do that. There are also other amazing podcasts which we will talk about on the show. Uh, I've already mentioned like the, the Dave Gerhardt show exit five. One I listen to every time there's a new, uh, podcast out. Yes, absolutely. Love that one. It adds value to my life on the regular. Um, but differentiation wise, we are interviewing them one-on-one the same question asked every time. Why do you think there is such high turnover in the seat of CMOs? Cause we're really trying to solve that problem. Mm. I like that. Yep. So um, tell us what the difference here from your perspective, because I know you talk about yourself as a growth marketer. What's the difference between a growth marketer and let's say a normal marketer, whatever that means? Mm-hmm. Oh man, I wish I had my notes in front of me because I got <laughs> asked this the other day and I was like, I'm totally paying attention to you right now. And then I just <laughs> pulled up this article I wrote um, about it. So I've categorized myself as a growth marketer because I seem to surprise people when I talk about my end goal being a direct dotted line to revenue. So a lot of the executives or leaders that I talk to are more surprised that a marketer has their eye on revenue versus brand visibility or how many times our social media grew last year or like how many newsletters we sent or whatever marketing tactics. I also know that a lot of marketing leaders are genuinely interested in growing revenue mm-hmm. and there are other ways to grow. User growth is one of them, right? You can, instead of focusing on revenue, you can focus on user growth if that is the goal of the organization. Um, but in a lot of the organizations that I've worked for, the the growth mechanism has been revenue. So as a differentiator between a regular marketer, which I don't think any <laughs> of us are, you're really insulting a lot of your marketing friends by saying I that. I sure am. <laughs> yeah. Um, growth marketing is its own role and title now. Um, people are hiring growth marketers that can focus on and test various ways to grow areas of their business. So I'm launching a new product. I want to grow it. So I need the growth marketer to focus on this, A-B test it in this region or A-B test it with this user group or against these user groups. And then we will take it to scale. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So what would you, 
What do you, if you were to say you have a marketing superpower or a superpower in general, what would it be in this context? I feel like I just answered this question on my own well, podcast. Maybe, maybe because I, I would have, <laughs> I would have answered something different okay. uh, about you. Yeah. So, um, well, okay. I'll give you my answer for you. It seems like you have this uncanny ability to unearth things. Um, like, like we'll, you'll be talking about something. I'll be talking about something. And, and then I feel like I've just lost you to your phone and you're just gone. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm just, she's over here having this conversation by myself or, you know, I'll, I'll do something else. And a couple seconds later, like, okay, well, the answer to that thing is this. And Correct. you've just done a bunch of research. Yeah. You're not ignoring me. You're actually adding a lot of value to the conversation. Like mm-hmm. not a little value, like we were stalemated in the conversation and it wasn't really going anywhere. Or we're like, I wonder about blah, blah, blah. And we, and a normal person just sort of sitting there would go, hmm, yeah, I wonder about that too. But you actually go and figure it out. Like, well, actually it's, this is the very specific answer. I think in a marketing context, that is incredibly useful because a lot of marketers just give up. They're like, I don't know. I don't know what Google's doing. I don't know what links do. I don't know what a 302 does versus a 301 yeah. or whatever. Um, I don't know if a 500 error is, is means it's permanently de-indexed or if it's only de-indexed for a certain amount of time and how long is that or whatever. Like having that intellectual curiosity, I think is incredibly powerful as a marketer. Yeah. I, I don't disagree. Um, I answer a lot by growth because that's what I'm passionate about. So maybe, maybe that question is a bit misleading for me. I'm like, I really love growth. So that's my superpower. But I do know that I'm extremely good at research and, and, and digging things up, whether it's good or bad. Like in my last role, I, I dug up a lot of stuff and I found a lot of data. It didn't point to a good outcome, um, but the data was useful. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and sometimes learning the truth isn't pretty. So, yeah. So, okay. Well, give us the punchline. Why do you think uh, CMOs are actually, I'm going to answer you this question in a different context and then you can answer. So we have a similar problem with insecurity. We have a 18 month time horizon approximately for CISOs, uh, chief information security officers. And we think the reason is they are not incentivized to find assets that might eventually lead to vulnerabilities because if they were to find out about these vulnerabilities, that would mean they'd have to do something about them and they're better off not knowing because that reduces their personal liability. Like if they know there's a vulnerability and they don't fix it, that's dangerous to them. Mm -hmm. So really their job is to do two, maybe three infrastructure projects, new firewalls, new VPNs, new antivirus, something like that, roll them out, and then leave. That's it. And it usually takes 12 to 18 months to do those three big infrastructure projects, two or three. And then from a liability perspective, it's just better if they leave at that point. And so it's it's a danger issue to them to stick around any longer. So I think that's what's going on in security. So why do you think that it's happening for marketers? Yeah. So I think that my conclusion or my hypothesis uh, after doing a lot of research over the past couple months is that I don't necessarily think that the majority of CMOs are being ousted, like booted out. 
because of frustration or because their expectations were mismanaged. I truly believe that in some situations um, that is happening and CMOs get loud about it and that's what gets attention. But there are companies that need high growth CMOs. And then there are companies like GE, for example, that need a CMO who can stay for 18 years and retain the brand and retain the products and retain the reputation and the visibility. And they've had a CMO for a very long time and she is very good at what she does. And when you are rapidly growing, let's say 10X in one, two, three years, you're scaling. So a CMO that can handle a company size of 11 to 50 may not be a CMO that can handle a company size of 50 to 300 or 300 to 1,000 or 1,000 to 10,000. So it's attrition by growth of the company, you think? That is my current hypothesis just based on research. Um, so that's that's my current thinking. I think that there's some stayers, some C- CMOs that are really built to stay, to maintain the company. And then there are some CMOs built to grow. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So I, I b- firmly believe there's two types of managers out there, the wartime and the peacetime managers. And in wartime, when you know, the chips are down and this company is about to fail and, you know, this product is way behind and we need to start firing people or, you know, get something up out the door immediately. Our competitors are chomping at the bit. We're losing a value, like stuff's happening right now. That's a wartime CEO Mm -hmm. or wartime executive or whatever we're talking about. And they cannot act like a peacetime executive. If they act like a peacetime executive, the company will fail. But a peacetime executive makes a lot of sense when things are going well. It, you know, it's a it's a growth company. It's, it's successful. It's breaking out of its, you know, it's high in the Gartner magic quadrant. It's doing well if all those things matter. You know, it's making more revenue than it should. You know, it's just kind of chugging along. All, all the affiliate programs are making us money and there's nothing really to worry about. That person's job is to retain talent, hire and retain talent and make sure everyone's happy. Um. If you put a peacetime CEO or executive in that role of the wartime, they're just going to piss everybody off. Uh, you can't be just sitting around being happy. So maybe there is something to the company is growing at a certain rate or something's happening at a certain rate that you can no longer have that type of executive anymore. You have to have the next level. That next level doesn't look anything like the growth, like low end growth marker. Let's say they look more like this seasoned and let's talk about the brand and let's make it uh blue. We're going to move it from blue to green today or whatever. And that's, you know, a three month project just to decide what color of green. And, you know, that's a very different type of marketer. Um, I would be so bored. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. And other people would, that would be the perfect job. And, you know, managing a lot of people and there's 50 people in the room have to decide which color of blue it's going to be or green or whatever. No, it's definitely not green. And, you know, so. So uh, one last thing I want to talk about and then I'll I'll let this uh, this ride because we've talked about a lot of things is I've heard you, but also a lot of marketers talk about a conflict uh, between marketing and sales. 
and I'd like to hear why you think that exists. Why, why can't you guys get along? Sales could only just do <laughs> their job. Put it in the CRM. Um, I think it's expectation setting, right? When um, I've come into an organization, there's almost no situation in which, like, we've come in together and set the table appropriately. Just like everything's been thrown at me. Everything's crazy. We hated the last marketing director. Good luck. That's a great way to start, you know? And then like, well, why isn't this happening? Why? It's my second day. Right. Um, and same with I sales. I still don't know where the copier is. Like I'm, I'm absolutely certain this happens in sales as well. Right. So they are on the front lines and they are assumedly talking with customers day in, day out. And they know what the customer wants and needs, assumedly. I'm saying that. Yeah, that for, is that is wildly giving I'm, them a lot more credit than I'm they saying, necessarily I'm saying deserve. that for a reason. Let me get okay. to my point. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then they're coming to marketing with all of these demands. I need brochures like this. I need this like this. We also need to throw this event here and here and here. And marketing says no a lot because marketing has a plan that we have agreed on with the senior leadership team that has not only been okayed with by their senior leaders, a sales leader, but also by the product team who's agreed on the messaging because the product does a certain thing that behaves a certain way to answer the customer's needs, right? So it's it's a lot of jumbled communication. There's not a lot of cohesivity. Um, I wish it were better. better. Um, and that's what I like about this growth role coming more present in organizations because it's a role that works very closely with sales because it's revenue related or growth related. Like we're working together. We're on the same team, by the way, I'm not trying to steal your commission because that's not what I'm here for. And so if this test works, let me know and we'll do more of it. And we're sharing the information with you right away. If it fails, tell me. And there is nothing sweeter for a salesperson and telling a marketing person that their things sucked. But it's okay because a growth marketer looks at something like that and says, you know what, if I'm not winning, I'm learning. So what did I learn from this failed test here and how can I improve it so that I can reach my bonus goals at the end of the year? So how do you guys start getting along? What does it take? Um, If you were to tell other marketers out there or other sales team, like how do you learn how to live in peace and harmony and both grow together? And I still, I still haven't figured this out. Um, I think it, as, I'll get back to you. as the CMO or CEO or whatever you are of the CMO show, I think that would be a really awesome thing to learn about from your executives that you're going to be interviewing or, um, yeah. you're not the host. I'm not the host. Our host is Kate mm-hmm. Gunning and she actually did a, um, a pre-read with a CMO of a consultancy that does, um, a lot of work to merge sales and, and, uh, marketing, uh, organizations merge is probably not the right word, but help with their cohesivity and, 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 uh, putting their ops together. And so I hope that she's brought into the studio and we can actually record a good episode because she had some good tips 
in the pre-read that we did. Um, we just were doing a lot of testing in the show early on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would think that would be a, in particular, a really good thing to know from all of these seasoned experts, like what's worked, what has gotten you past this massive <laughs> divide with sales? All of us are still frustrated. I mean, but yeah, but surely someone has cracked it for their organization somewhere. Yeah. And then the Maybe. sales person leaves <laughs> and someone else comes in with a better way to do it. Sure. Like I'm, I'm telling you, I belong to about 15 different CMO communities mm -hmm. online and every one of them has a version of a rant channel and daily there is at least one rant about what sales did wrong. Hmm. Well, may there be peace on earth and goodwill towards sales and marketing <laughs> and marketing, of course. Um, all right. So where do people find you find the show? Like, how do you get in touch? Yep. So you can find the show at cmoshow.com. Um, and get in touch with me at Michael Robin at cmoshow.com. Great. Well, Michael Robin, it was very nice having you on the show. I really appreciate you coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.